funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Well, guys, it's a sad, sad day here at the uh, Silver Screen Video. We are having to do a new opening for this episode because, uh, unfortunately, we had a guest fall through and, um, I mean, not fall through the floor, but, like, fall through recording with us. And um, it's, a, it's a dark day here at the Silver Screen Video. Dark day. What I want to know is, under what circumstances do you think people would think that you meant that we had a guest over to our podcasting studio, which we don't have, and they fell through the floor and therefore could not record an episode. Look, I think that there, there is like, if I heard someone on a podcast saying what I just said, I would want them to clarify because uh, I, I do think it's possible to fall through a floor. And if you fell through a floor, especially at someone's podcasting studio, you definitely wouldn't want to record with them. And if you fell through the floor at your own home, you clearly would be in no shape to record. So I'm just saying from a scheduling perspective, there were some tech issues and some other things that caused the episode to fall through, but not the guest. I mean, yeah, it's uh let's let the cat out of the bag. It was technical issues, folks. We had motherfucking technical issues. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you can tell, but me and John right now are, we are redlining. We are just bubbling uh, right under. We're both at stroke level currently. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy whatever the fuck this episode is about. <laughs> well, you know, uh, that's my secret, Jacob. Oh, God. Now I'm even more mad that you did this fucking stupid Hulk thing. Um, but no, no. Do you want to know what my secret is? Oh, sorry. Yeah. What is your secret? Uh, I'm always redlining. Okay. All right. Um, here's the show. <laughs> well, uh, anyway, if this sounds a little different, uh, it's because we had to do a new cold open. That's cool. This is a great episode. I remember what it's about, unlike my co-host, and it is fantastic. So, uh, here we go with the new episode, uh, coming straight to you from the silver screen video with no guests because they fell through. Uh, you know, Halloween is a couple of weeks away. We love Halloween here, but for longtime listeners, you know, as well as we both know all too well, we overdid it our first year for Halloween, and we haven't <laughs> recovered yet. We decided to put out, I don't know, it feels, looking back, it feels like 200 episodes that month. Yeah, I think, um, I think we did an episode a day. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it, that, that's definitely what it felt like. Anyway, so mm. we, we haven't really embraced Halloween since, not because we hate it, but because we, like I said, still recovering. But anyway, we are going to have a little fun this Halloween and, and with this movie in particular, but also I doubt Jacob has because I think I love Halloween more than you do. I think that's fair to say, but I have been watching a shitload of scary movies as of late, just, just getting ready for that day. I just I think I started watching scary movies like at the beginning of September, honestly. Dude, hit me with them, man. Let's do some rapid fire. I'm ready to react and uh, learn about a bunch of movies that I've probably never heard of. Well, one of them you you have I think you've heard of. I've told you about it. It's it's a little it's a little indie gem from 2015 called We Are Still Here. 
Mm-hmm. And it's it's a I, I, you know I can't do a hard recommend because it's a slow paced kind of weird movie. It's hard to explain what it's about, but it involves like obviously demons and ghosts and like this small town murdering people. So I was hooked from the beginning when I first saw the trailer for this back in 15 and I've rewatched it every few years since. And, you know, rewatching it, it didn't hold up as well as I was hoping. Actually, my wife hated it on this rewatch. She was like, I can't remember ever liking this. So that was, uh, that was strong words. I, I, I fell on it a little bit, but it's on Peacock. If you have Peacock, watch it. It's definitely worth watching, getting ready for the Halloween season. But it, uh, if you're not a fan of slow burn, and things like that, it may not be for you, but it is very violent. So that could help with some people who are on the fence about it. A lot of blood. Let me ask you this. I'm assuming you have, uh, well, I guess everybody can have Peacock. Uh, do, you, do you have Peacock Premium, or do you just go with the ad Peacock uh, is my first question. My second question is, is there any good shit on there? I I did the thing they did they were doing back in September where it was like a buck ninety nine a month for a year for Peacock Premium. So when you watch a movie, you have to watch like a hundred and forty seconds of commercials in the beginning, and then it's all movie. Oh, so okay. I can deal with that. Yeah. Um. You know, there's there's a. I'm not going to say great stuff. I mean, I watched oddly enough a scary movie that's a, a, a non scary movie. I watched on there is the vengeance from BJ Novak, the guy who plays Ryan in the office. He uh, wrote and directed it. I didn't want to pay for it in theaters and then it hit Peacock for free. So that was nice. And I watched that. It was actually really good. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Me and you text a little bit about how there's something we don't like about BJ Novak. I can't really put my finger on what it is. You know, you know what but, I call him? I just don't. What do you call him? I call him Blowjob Novak. That's really original. You know, I bet he's never heard that. He, dude, I bet not. I bet he's never heard that. Dude, there's a great episode of, of him on Mark Marin, And uh, and Mark Marin has expressed, I've listened to Marin for years. He's expressed his disdain for BJ Novak in the past. Really? <laughs> so, yes. So there was some tension in the beginning of of Marin being like, yeah, you know, like I've said some stuff, and Ryan's like, or uh, BJ Novak's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, it just, they, it's a fine episode, and they make up, and like everything's cool, but it is hilarious at first because until they find their rhythm, it's just like Marin, who is typically brutally honest to a fault at times, um, was just going ahead, and he was like, he didn't give a fuck. He was like, yeah, I said it. Some of it's true. Like whatever. Dude, so. we should start getting people on here we've had beef with. You know, we should get, uh, uh, I don't know, who have we created with that, that woman from Slash Film who we criticized her her list. We should get her on here. Um, well, I don't know if that was legitimate beef, to be fair. I respect her list. I just wholeheartedly disagree with her list. Yeah, but I'm just, you know, I don't know. I'm stretching the, the definition of beef, maybe. Um, well, now I just want to start beefing with random people to, to, to just so we could have beef and then we'll get them on. Ryan Johnson, uh, maybe Ryan Johnson, or for me at least. Um, or no, Mangold. Mangold is the answer, clearly. That's true. That's true. James Mangold, for those of you that listened to an episode a few episodes ago where we talked about the uh, Twitter exchange we had with James Mangold, um, I- I'd love to have him on just to talk. Yeah, you, sure. called him a, you called him a filthy Hollywood hack. Is that right? I don't know if I use those words exactly, but you did capture the sentiment properly. <laughs> um, 
But uh, let's get back on track here with this with this Halloween shit. Gotcha, I got two sorry, more. Yeah. I got two more real quick. Neither one of these are surprises. Uh, we have talked about both of these movies in a previous episode where we did John Carpenter's whole filmography. But you know, I got to watch the thing. I ride pretty hard for it. I I do think it's one of the greatest movies ever made, and uh, it there's nothing wrong with it. Every time I watch it, I know it beat by beat. And every time I watch it, it continues to blow my fucking mind. The perfect movie. It, it really is, man. Because it, it's so insane when you watch it. Because it's like, this works for a horror movie fan. And it works for a sci-fi movie fan. And he captured both of them so well. Um, very similar to Alien. Most people... Or they're terrified by Alien, which is fair because it's terrifying, but also it works really well as a sci-fi movie. But I think The Thing is just better in general. Uh, no offense to Ridley's classic, but I do prefer The Thing over Alien 100%. Yeah, I mean, The Thing The Thing is one of those movies. I think Alien is a really good comparison. Uh, I also think another good comparison is Halloween in that like it's still frightening and not... The Thing is frightening in a sense that like not like, oh, I'm scared to go to sleep at night or whatever, but like, it's like while you're watching it, you're just like, Jesus, man, like the, like imagining yourself in that situation, just like, what would you do? You know what I mean? Like, you're just, there's no, it's not like those cheesy horror movies where it's like, just don't go in the house, just get in your car, drive to the next town. It's like, no, these motherfuckers are stuck. Like there is no, what would you do? You know? And that, that makes it like perennially terrifying, you know? No, absolutely. I mean, I think location is key and just like, yeah, just like with alien location is key. Like there's just nowhere to go. Right. And I think that just makes it. And, and obviously both of them have such an amazing cast. Uh, Kurt Russell playing, you know, one of the coolest dudes ever. Like actually he manages to play one of the coolest dudes ever. in a lot of his movies, another Carpenter classic, big trouble in little China, which I also recently rewatched, not really a horror movie, but, it's a classic. Um, but while I'm on the Carpenter kick, Prince of Darkness, I rewatched that. Mm. That movie holds the fuck up. That movie is awesome. Now, and, Prin- uh, Prince of Darkness yeah. is, that's not Sam Neill, right? No, that's not Sam Neill. Sam Neill is In the Mouth of Madness, which is another that's right. amazing John Carpenter movie that is so, like, it's the essence of H.P. Lovecraft, which automatically has me already but yeah that's that's one i'm gonna rewatch before halloween shows up just because i watch that every year i i really admire that one the lovecraft adaptation even though i'm not as familiar with lovecraft's uh stuff as i would like to be but the uh i think prince of darkness i was less taken with when we did our big carpenter marathon but i do remember a distinct like handheld shot from prince of darkness that just like shakes me to my core when I even think about it. Like they're so, um, I don't know. Do you remember that? Do you remember that shot that I talked about? There's, there's like one handheld shot in the entire movie and it's like so jarring and it's like, Oh my God, this is horrifying. Like, I think I do remember. I, I mean, to me, the entire concept of Prince of darkness, including the ending, which I won't spoil. There's a lot of stuff that kind of disturbs me just in that, entire like the arena in which he's playing in so right uh yeah it's just one of those movies where it may not be your favorite and the effects may not be the best but it's still a pretty disturbing movie right at its core 
Um, oh, wait, let me check its Rotten Tomatoes score because I, I'm not sure if him or Jordan Peele is a better director. Let me. Uh, that's true. That's true. Jordan Peele's three just, movies. Uh, um, okay. Well, yeah. He, Carpenter's not Jordan Peele based on tomato meter, but, you know. That's maybe, true. Maybe, uh, maybe he'll get there one of these days. He's still alive. So it gives Carpenter something to aspire to. <laughs> right. Um, right. It's funny. My blood pressure I, is raising as we're, as we're joking <laughs> about this. Going back to H.P. Lovecraft, dude, I listen, I've listened to a few podcasts that talk about him, and I love it. Like, we didn't do the obligatory, we like H.P. Lovecraft, but we don't like who he was as a person. Because it seems like everyone who talks about Lovecraft, they're like, no, he was a terrible human being. I just want to make it clear. I don't support his xenophobic views, but I do love his stories. And it's like, does that need to be said <laughs> every time someone brings up Lovecraft? I know. <laughs> It's it's so funny too. Like we're gonna talk about Dante a little bit today, and it's like, I mean, I don't I don't know if Dante necessarily did anything that objectionable, but it's like nobody talks about nobody's like now Plato was a really influential Greek philosopher. However, he was a pedophile. <laughs> like, <laughs> now, just like, to be clear, I'm endorsing some of his beliefs on philosophy, but I do not endorse his pedophilia. I know. Right. Like, it's like, it's like, it's like time erases all wounds. Like, you know, pedophile is not even like the, the 10th thing that people mention when they bring up like Plato or Aristotle, but buddy, they were doing it, you know? <laughs> um, the, uh, the last thing I do want to mention before we jump into our movie, cause I am so pumped to talk about it is there is a YouTube channel. I rarely talk about, we we rarely talk about YouTube channels in general. But Well, because you shouldn't be consuming any other media of movie content other than the silver screen video. So, I Well, mean, that is what I typically believe, but this one in particular, I'm a big fan of video essays. I wish I was talented enough to do them mm-hmm. because I do think they're they're phenomenal. And this is so timely, and I really think you're going to like this. Uh, I meant to send it to you. I will after this episode. I'll put the link in our show notes too. And I, I, I'll definitely give this channel a shout out because it's great. The channel is called Captain Christian. And he's been doing video essays for a while. And he is great at breaking things down. But his most recent one, just in time for Halloween, was based on what he thinks is Japanese uh, Japan's most insane horror movie. And it's a movie that you had us watch last year, the year before. Oh, is it House? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, it's not a, he does. He's really good at breaking the content down very quickly. I think the video is like eight minutes, but he talks about the director and how the director's ten year old daughter is really who helped the story, helped develop and build the story. Right. Because he was a firm believer of like adults can only like focus on things they can understand, but with children. The sky's the limit, you know? Right. Um, so having her, like, if, you, if you've if you seen the movie House, you will have no trouble understanding what I'm talking about because it's fucking insane. To say it's insane is an understatement, if anything. Yeah, because um, lots of movies are crazy and insane. This is this is beamed from another planet. Like, it, it, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's flying heads biting people's asses. There's pianos eating people. There's a man inexplicably turning into a pile of bananas. I mean, and that's just a a small percentage of it. So yeah, no, it's great. That's cool. Yeah, no, I'll definitely watch it. That's um, yeah. Cause I'd never seen, I'd never seen house before, but I'd always heard of it. And then when we watched it, I think I liked it maybe a little more than you did. Cause I, I think you did. I think I knew about kind of what I was getting into before we watched it. But, um, and shout out to that guy. I can't think of his name, the director of that movie, but I think he's still alive and making movies. 
So. Well, I'll tell you, it it made me want to to rewatch it, and I have a good excuse to because uh, for the month of for the month of October, my wife wanted me to help build her a list of horror movies she hasn't seen to make it more difficult, and she wants to watch like she wanted to watch one horror movie every day for the month of October. So, gotcha. Finding movies she hasn't seen has been fun. So that one's on the list for late October because I do want to rewatch it with kind of with this fresh like kind of take and like this, I kind of know what to expect. Maybe I can embrace the insanity a bit more. Okay. Let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get to the main event here. Cause I am, I am excited to talk about this. Um, should I, before we jump into it, should I kind of say how I found this movie? Yeah, go for it. Introduce it a little bit and then I'll, um, I'm going to go a little, I'm going to go in a little bit on Dante, but you know, not too much. Well, I mean, I, I was looking for, some little like off the beaten path horror movies to do a couple of horror movie episodes in October. And I didn't want, like, like I said, guys, I I need you to understand how much we overdid our first year of this podcast on Halloween. Yeah. Just, just scroll back through your feed and see, like, I'm, I'm not kidding. I think we watched like 30 horror movies that month. Well, you watch more than me because as I said before, we picked like the third part of something. And I'm like, you don't need to watch the first two to understand it. And you were like, fuck that. I'm doing it. And I watched so, all the John Carpenter movies. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot. So so we covered a lot of horror movies is, is what I'm trying to say. And and I wanted to find something not like pretentious, like, oh, this is a horror movie that's so crazy. You've never seen it. Like, I just wanted to find something that was cool, like mm. that maybe it's heard of, but it's just something that nobody else is kind of talking about or something. But I wanted it to be interesting. And I came across this list and this movie was on it. And the name of the movie is. El Inferno. It is a 1911 Italian silent film. Uh, they say loosely adapted from Inferno. I I kind of think they more than loosely adapted it. I thought it was pretty spot on, but we'll dive into that clearly. Um, it took them three years to make it, and it is the first full length Italian movie. But I'll tell you, I'll add a little extra nugget of info. It's kind of implied from a lot of film historians that this is the first feature length film ever, Mm. but rumor has it. I don't think this can be confirmed, but I am not a film historian. This is just something I came across. There is a Danish movie that was made in 1909 that was that clocked in just over like a minute over what a feature, a full feature length film is. And they have that claim to fame, but that one isn't confirmed with, with El Inferno. It is confirmed like that, that this, you know, it's, it's an hour and 12 minutes. So that is over feature length long. So anyway, I thought that was really cool from a film history perspective. So sure. Sure. Yeah. Maybe the, the first, and also I, I, I got, yeah, I got to, when you sent the, when you sent me this uh, and we should mention um, it's not really streaming anywhere except for YouTube. I'm sure you can search on YouTube or if you want to slide into our DMS, we'll, we'll hit you with the link. Um, we would post the link on Twitter, but we don't want it to get taken down. Uh, similar. To- well, it's also very, yeah, it's really easy to find if you search it on YouTube, but there's a full color version and then there's the regular black and white version. Both copies are on there and both copies are good. I watch both. So, Oh, okay, cool. Um, yeah, because like back, I know back then they used to just like hand color every frame you know, which is, yeah, I mean, so insane. Uh, but yeah, no, it's cool. It's cool 
yeah, this is this is such a rare uh, find because I mean, 1911. You know, I mean, you're talking about. I mean, I've seen a lot of silent movies, but I mean, let's be real. I'm mostly talking about stuff that came out in the 20s. You know, like really, the only stuff I've even seen from the the teens there are like you know a handful of D.W. Griffith movies and some early Chaplin shorts, but like. Other than that, man, I, that might as well be a black hole. I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know much about that. But like 1911, I mean, you're talking about four years before Birth of a Nation, and Birth of a Nation basically invented how to make a narrative cinema. And so this is, uh, this is like a cave painting of a movie almost. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's really kind of a fascinating document to be like. Yeah, this is what we did for movies before there were any rules on how to do movies. You know, it, it's it's really and, cool. I mean, I know I say this a lot, but I mean, I first of all, I can't help how much I love movies. So this is just going to happen. But this is truly it's it's brilliant. It is it is insane. The amount of special effects they could do. You know, it took three years to make it. It came out in 1911, which means they were doing these things in 1908, and 1909. And. When you watch this and you see some of what they were able to capture and what they were able to do with, maybe they didn't even call it stop motion then. That's what we call it now. Like what, what they were able to do with prosthetics and, and th- just telling the story. Uh, there's even a scene which we'll get to with a decapitated man. That is, it's insane looking. It really is. It's, it's insane that they were able to do it. So, I mean, it's just, yeah, man, the whole experience was just, it was great. I'm so glad we watched this. Yeah, it's really cool. It's like it, it reminded me also of the early, uh, well, not I mean I say early, but just the George Melier um, short films uh, from like the 1900s, where you know he was a stage magician, and a lot of early cinema was uh, just recreating like stage bound illusions that they could do in a theater, and just recreating that on film and so it's cool to see that's why i like watching a lot of the melier stuff because it's cool to see what they could do with special effects back then but a lot of the george melier short films are just sketches basically it just are shorts they're just little like okay and these guys went to the moon and here they're all climbing into a fake rocket and you know but well like this is like an actual real movie you know this shows how far this you know how far cinema had come in the past 10 years it's 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 a collection of great special effects but it's also a collection of great special effects molded into an actual narrative and an actual movie you know it's it's really really cool no it it absolutely is and you know just to be clear this is only on the first book like like most people i have only read the first the first book in the trilogy um and I have not read it in years, so I'm not going to claim to be familiar with it. You, however, are a big Dante fan. I'm assuming you've read all three. Um, I have. I have read all three. Um, yeah, I'm just going to go in on Dante a little bit because yeah, yeah, uh, break it down for us. Yeah, because I, uh, yeah, I just I love. I don't know. I, I'll, I'll get into why I, I love the, just the concept of Dante almost. And so you know, obviously, one of the earliest, uh, basically the earliest form of western literature that we have is the epic poem right and obviously this starts with um ancient greece and the iliad and the odyssey 
But the Iliad and the Odyssey are kind of interesting because they were not written by a guy named Homer. They were written down by a guy named Homer, but they were originally oral poems that were transmitted orally. And then one day some guy was like, maybe we should write this shit down. Right. So it's, you can't really point to a guy and be like, Hey, he came up with this. Right. It was more of a thing of like, no, these, these stories that came together in the Iliad and the Odyssey, they were collated and organized by somebody at some point, but he didn't come up with all that shit, right? These were folk tales and oral tales and stuff like that. And so then the next great big epic poem that we have is the Aeneid, which is uh, what Virgil wrote in ancient Rome. Virgil, who comes up uh, obviously and plays a huge part in Dante's Inferno. Um, But Virgil was writing an epic poem and What's really interesting, you know, we think of the Aeneid as like this great work of literature, but it really is a piece of basically ancient Roman propaganda, right? It's political propaganda. It's uh, Augustus basically going to Virgil and being like, hey, can you make us an Odyssey? Can you make or can you make us an Iliad and an Odyssey? Can you do that? Can you make a big epic poem that celebrates our culture the way that the Iliad and the Odyssey celebrated ancient Greek culture? And Virgil was like, I can do that. And so, so it's, 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 a, it is the work of imagination of, of Virgil, but it, there's a little bit of a remove because it's just like, well, they're just copying the, you know, the Greeks, you know, the Romans weren't writers, they were emperors, you know, they, they built an empire. They didn't build, they didn't build great works of art. So anyways, fast forward to Dante, right? Dante is going to make his epic poem, right? He's a poet. He's in Florence, um, and he is going to make an epic poem. He is going to join this tradition, um, the Aeneid and uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And you can obviously see what he's trying to do because he his poem is uh, himself journeying through hell and through purgatory and then through heaven. And he uses Virgil as his guide, right? Obviously, he's this is a nod back to ancient Roman you know, epics. Um, he references uh, Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey. But fun fact, uh, Dante could not read Greek. Therefore, he could not read the Iliad and the Odyssey. So he had no idea what uh, what the Iliad and the Odyssey really said. Like he could he, he could obviously hear about it and like, you know, other people wrote about it, but he could never read um, uh, the actual originals in the Iliad and the Odyssey. So he didn't really know a lot about him and didn't really care. It seemed like, so anyways, he uses Virgil as his guide to guide him through hell and purgatory. Vir- Virgil exits stage left at the end of purgatory. Cause he's not allowed to go into heaven because he's a filthy heathen. So Dante decides he's going to make this epic poem. And this is the boilerplate. Uh, this is if you English one Oh one uh, story of like, okay, Dante is writing the epic poem of medieval Christianity, right? He is he is writing the the Iliad for the Middle Ages, right? For medieval Christianity. And it, it is a compendium of all of the morals and all of the uh, systems of thought and viewpoints of medieval Christianity, right? And in many ways, this is true. Right. In many ways, this is true because uh, Dante goes through uh, hell and he sees all these sinners. And when he when he first starts out, he is he feels sorry for these sinners. 
right? He's he feels sorry for some of them, but through the progression, while he's going through hell, Dante has to learn that these sinners deserve what they got, that they deserve this eternal punishment, right? Because that is the system of morality. These people have not just sinned and done something wrong, but in medieval Christianity, God is not like something. It's hard to describe how medieval Christians thought about God. It wasn't necessarily obedience. It was, no, God is going to help me. And the Christian God is going to help me live a more full life. Right. And the sinners who are burning in the inferno, they are not so much disobedient to this all encompassing God. They are turning their back on the good life. They are, they're turning their back on their capabilities as human beings. Right. In fact, they are, uh, they are uh, malcontents or people who are nihilistic or who don't believe in who are, who are basically turning their back on nature, creation, and all that is good in this world. And so Dante realizes by the time he leaves the inferno, he's like, man, these motherfuckers deserve this shit. Right. So in, in that way, Dante's Inferno and the Divine Comedy upholds medieval Christian values, right? But there's a couple of things that Dante throws in that completely uh, flies in the face of medieval Christian ethics and morality, okay? One of them is the fact that he claimed that, and I think he believed this, that his book was the third Testament. There's the old Testament, the new Testament, and then there's the divine comedy. Dante thought he was writing the third Testament. He thought that what he was writing was basically as good as scripture and as important as scripture. That was not a part of medieval Christianity. That is a fucking delusion that Dante had in his head that he just made up one day. So that we have that to consider. Uh, the, the, the Dante steps outside the bounds of medieval Christian morality. Another way that Dante steps outside the bounds is he fell in love with a uh, girl named Beatrice that apparently in real life he saw twice, right? He saw this woman twice um, and he decided, I love this woman. And I, I don't even think he ever spoke to her. Like it was like one of those, you know, medieval things of like, I've never spoken to this woman, but I've dedicated, I would die for her. You know, one of these like chival early chivalric kind of ideas. So Dante is writing his Inferno and he, 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 he's trying to basically create a compendium of the cosmos, right? He relied on the latest advances in science and technology and mathematics to order his universe. Right. And it's so much so that, a lot of Dante's claims about the way that the universe works and the way that the earth is shaped and all that, uh, like, like they, they were ahead of their, their time because Dante was paying attention to the latest and greatest in, in science and mathematics. And so, you know, some of this shit is scientifically accurate, obviously not all of it. So anyways, so Dante is creating his world, right? He's creating this compendium of what life is like on earth during this time of medieval Christianity and creating the universe and making sure that it's scientifically accurate and spiritually accurate to God, the father and all that. So this guy gets up to heaven 
and he goes all through hell and all the nine circles and he goes all the way up through purgatory which is a mountain if you've never read the purgatorio the purgatorio is a mountain that leads up to heaven and when you get to the top of it that's where the garden of eden is and you ascend into heaven uh and heaven is a completely abstract place uh that is really hard for dante to describe and it doesn't make a lot of sense. There's a lot of theological arguments in there and he gets to the whole thing. And Beatrice is sitting at the right hand of God, the father, along with his son, Jesus Christ. Now you may be thinking, what does Beatrice symbolize? Is she standing in for the Virgin Mary? The answer is no. Beatrice isn't symbolizing shit. Dante literally put this girl that he met twice and fell in love with and thought about his entire life. He just thought, you know what? Let's put her up there too. I want her to be at the peak of at the peak of the mountaintop sitting next to God almighty. Right. It, it, and obviously this, this is not the case in medieval Christianity. There is no Beatrice in the Bible. There is no, this was a complete invention by Dante. And this is the key point. I'm leading up to this key point, which is, in my mind, and this isn't necessarily true, but in my mind, I like to think of Dante as the first real artist, right? First real literary artist, I'll say. I'll qualify it. The first real literary artist, and for, for, for the following reason. There was no Homer, right? Homer didn't exist. He's just a guy who wrote down the oral tales. Virgil, Virgil was writing propaganda for the Roman emperor, right? Dante, the, you may think like early on, oh, well, Dante is just, you know, he's just recreating basically what the Iliad and the Odyssey did, but for medieval Christianity. No, he's not. Dante's operating in a sphere of his own and he is create he, the divine comedy is a world and a system that he has created to his own specifications. Dante basically looked in the face of medieval Christianity and said, I know my concept of Beatrice doesn't line up with yours. And I don't give a shit. Beatrice is going at the right hand of God, the father. And by the way, this is the third Testament. Fuck you. And, you know, basically drop the mic. Right. To me, Dante is the first great, the first literary artist in the sense that he is creating something that is a world of his own. And that is what we love about art. Right. When we talk about some of our great, the greatest directors, when we talk about some of the greatest writers, what are they doing? They are creating a world that is of their own making. Right. And that is your there's a supreme confidence and arrogance that you have to have as an artist in order to do something like that, in order to say, no, no, what's in my head. You guys got to see this shit. You got to see it, or you got to read it, or you got to, you know, see it in a painting or whatever. You got to see this shit that is going on in my head. Cause it's worth seeing. And not only is it worth seeing, but it may be sublime and it may be one of the greatest things you can ever experience. And that Dante, I think, Dante was the first person to think like that. I think Dante was the very first person to ever be like, you know what? What's in my fucking head is just as valuable as the Bible. It's the third Testament, right? Uh, my, the, the shit that I'm coming up with, it doesn't line up with medieval Christian morality. Well, guess what? Medieval Christian morality is wrong and I'm right. This girl that I met twice and fell in love with. Yeah. She's up in heaven at the right hand of God, the father. And nobody can say shit to me. I, I think Dante really believed this shit, by the way. I don't think he was like, 
it wasn't like he was like being metaphorical about this. I think he really believed it. Beatrice died or died young. And I think he was like, yeah, I think she's at the right hand of God, the father. So he's a little crazy, right? In this regard. So anyways, that's why I think Dante is so important, important because I think that's what he represents to me personally. And I also think that's what he represents in the history of human artistic achievement. He represents the first time somebody stuck their head up and was like, what is in my head is more important than the world at large and the systems around me. You got to see this shit. And so then he wrote it. And that's, um, that's my Dante spiel. That's my Dante spiel. It's, I think he is one of the three or four most important human beings in the history of, of like artistic achievement. And, um, as a result, that makes this, this, his work kind of unfilmable, but it also makes it, well, you can do whatever you want then, right? You can do whatever you want. This is not Dante's Inferno. This is, uh, the director of of this movie's inferno he's creating his own world based on dante's world so anyways that that's my thing i'm i'm you you say something now i don't know what now i don't know whether to call you professor carol or uh just keep calling you jacob i don't know um, um you can just call me what you usually do which is i think daddy is what you normally call me is that right well that's inappropriate <laughs> um i'll tell you <laughs> Uh, it's been a while since I've been to church, but I'm fairly certain I remember the book of Beatrice in the New Testament. So I'm going to have to challenge you there. It's in. You have um, to look in the back. Yeah, it's in there. And yeah. the pages are sticky. I don't know why. It's like it's like po- it's like post revelation. Right. So I don't I don't want to get lost in the weeds here with the book of Beatrice. But anyway, right. Look, I I, I think Dante. I don't have nearly that to say because I, I like I said I'm not. I haven't read it in years. Probably since. Uh, my one semester of college, maybe. But uh, it's really interesting how influential Dante was on our modern view of hell and our modern view of just like the images, a lot of the images we have in our head and a lot of the information like that we know about religion that came uh, away from the Bible. It was strongly influenced by Dante. And I think that's fascinating. I've always found that to be so fascinating. Um, I mean, I, I think, I think you could say, I mean, you know, Dante was proclaiming himself that he wrote the third Testament. I think in some ways he did. I mean, he, he did like our imagery of hell, I think comes much more from Dante than it does the Bible. You know, I mean, in the Bible, you get some references to like, you know, Lake of fire and, and shit like that. But like Dante is like, systematic about this whole thing our, our i think our our visions of it and our idea of it comes directly from him well what's crazy is i don't think we ever get like a like a clear vision of what hell is in the bible right which is really interesting as well if you because you don't really think about that when you're looking at, at the bible as like this major religious text like it's hard to step away and be like oh shit like there's not really a direct like definition of hell um so it would make sense that we kind of fall back on something that is a direct like strictly divided very organized uh way to view hell uh, which is essentially uh, world building you know yeah it's the most interesting fantasy i think you can even if you find reading the book boring in terms of the theories and ideas he introduced it's really the most interesting fantasy out there 
Yeah. I mean, um, it's, it's, it's basically biblical fan fiction. You know, Dante was like, I'm going to, I'm going to flesh some stuff out over here. You know, I cannot believe I, th- this movie was made in, in, in 1911. There is a lot of shit in this movie that is fucked up. Uh, right. There's nudity in this movie. There's a lot of violence. Like, I've never done mushrooms, but I want to do them and watch this movie. <laughs> well, I don't know. That might, that might be a recipe for a pretty bad time. I just want to experience it because it just <laughs> seems like it just seems like it could be a lot of fun. But guys, I cannot overstate enough how bizarre it is to watch this movie and and realize it's it's from over a hundred years ago. Like, can you imagine what people thought when they watched this with as conservative and all that as 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 we were in obviously in the early nineteen hundreds? Like, uh, it's crazy. Some of the imagery in here. It's fucked up just to witness it in general, but just to think about watching it as a non-desensitized society where there wasn't tons of entertainment and different ways to find things the way there is now. Like it, it's honestly mind blowing. That's I mean, what I thought the entire time. I mean, we're like five years away in 1911. We're like five years away from people thinking the train was going to hit them, you know, like, you know, you know, out of the movie screen. So like, <laughs> You know, it's, I don't, I don't know if we were prepared for, for something like this, you know, I can see people going to see this and being like, Oh my God, the gates of hell have opened up. Um, yeah, dude, this would be terrifying. This would have been terrifying to see. Uh, I, I just, uh, there's so much cool shit. Like the director's vision, the fact that it took three years to make is just, it's, it's amazing in and of itself. What are some of your favorite things from it? Like just images or, 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 or segments that they did as he moved through it. Like uh, what, what is, what is some stuff that stood out to you? Well, I'll say this, the thing that I found most interesting and I didn't do, I didn't do a lot of research at all about this, but I just kind of uh, skimmed briefly and noticed that, that it was based on this. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of filtered through a bunch of different things, which I think is appropriate for Dante, right? Like, that's another thing about about uh, Dante's work, which is that he wrote it in Italian, and the way that the rhyme scheme is in Italian, it's basically impossible to translate into English, like literally impossible. Because in Italy, like words rhyme a lot easier than they do in or in, not in Italy in Italian, words rhyme a lot easier in Italian than they do in English, and because everything ends in a vowel, you know. So like literally like 20% of the words all rhyme with each other. And so, so like it's, it's literally impossible to get the same effect. You're not even, you're not even really reading Dante unless you're reading it in the original Italian, which means most of us will will never be able to truly get it right. And read it. Um, And and like when you read a book, like if you pick up a a book of Dante's Inferno at the store, you're basically reading like, a, a learned scholar's summary of what's in the what's in the content of the poem. You know, you're not reading, you're not getting any of the original rhythm or any of that shit. So it, it's untranslatable into English, which means it's untranslatable into film. Right. And so I think uh, one of the, the best things about the movie and the thing that I enjoyed the most is its resemblance to the paintings of Gustav Dory. You know about this guy, the, the artist um, who did a bunch of a bunch of uh, drawings of of Dante's Inferno. 
Yeah, it came up when I was doing research. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and I, I don't know. Like, I was familiar with his work because as a kid, I, we used to have a big book of the Bible as done by Gustav Dore. It was like, you know, his drawings of the Bible or whatever. And he also did a bunch of them basically illustrating the Bible and he illustrated Dante's Inferno as well. And that is what stuck out to me the most. It was like seeing D Gustav Dory's version of the Inferno come to life. So it was almost like, I don't know, it was almost like I was seeing Dante's content through a bunch of different like uh, translation methods, you know, and that is what added to the experience, I think, because it was, you know, you didn't get to feel that you were like, it felt so far removed from Dante's Inferno that it just felt like a whole nother creation, which I think is more impressive. You know what I mean? Like it felt like its own, its own whole creation. And um, yeah, that, that's what it was like to me, at least it was, it was these Gustav Dory paintings basically being recreated with early cinema technology, which I mean, I, for me personally, like that is right up my alley. That is, that is some of the coolest shit imaginable. So but yeah, that's my that, that that's that's really what I took away from most of because I mean what we have are like a series of vignettes, really, right? Like absolutely, yeah. The, like, like the scenery that, doesn't move like it does in something like Birth of a Nation because we just weren't there yet, you know. Yeah, and I think that's really what like it's it's probably why it took so long to make as well. Clearly, um, right? But I mean, yeah, you're really just moving from vignette to vignette, like it's just, and then they stitched it together to make. The whole movie and really what holds it together is just that narrative uh, that we're watching something inspired by Dante's Inferno. And and no, I agree with you. It was a lot of times it was like watching moving paintings. I mean, there yeah. was some really cool shit to do with people turning into serpents. And th there was even some some more advanced movie techniques they probably didn't have a name for uh, one with with the use of the giants was forced perspective, which was really interesting. Right. And it's crazy they knew how to do that 110 years ago. Uh, then there's there, what my one of my favorite uh, scenes of the whole movie is was Cerberus, and it looked awesome. Like obviously by today's stand, like if you if you're gonna watch this movie and insult the uh, insult the effects, then why are you watching the movie? It's from right. 1911. But yeah, clearly it looked a little wonky. But if you think about when they had it, that was awesome. Like. Yeah. The the most impressive image, there's the two most impressive images in the entire film to me are the decapitated man carrying his own head. <laughs> Clearly they did it with a, they did it with a with a black screen, but it was so well done, right? And so scary. And uh, the the image of of the three the three faced devil, uh, Satan, basically eating three traitors, and that was also brilliant. The entire mood that they were able to capture and kind of bring it over from that original text. Uh, it's just, like I said, it's nothing short of brilliant. I mean that like to the full extent of the word, this, if you have not experienced this movie uh, before listening to this episode, go find it, search it on YouTube. You have to see some of these images because it is truly a beautiful work of art. Yeah. And it's cool because it's, you really get to, you know, kind of, I don't want to say meditating, but just, just thinking about this movie and considering it, uh, you know, obviously while you're watching, cause I don't know about, you know, Roger Ebert talks about a, a lot about this, about how, when you're, 
a lot of times when you're watching a silent movie, you're kind of put into a reverie that is different than if you're watching a sound movie, you know, because yeah, it, it, like you're, you're kind of put in like a trance state almost. And, you know, it, it, when, when I think when you're watching this, at least for me, and I, I think m- for most people, you're, you're kind of thinking about, you know, at least I was thinking about the connection between this kind of elevated material. Right. Uh, Because I mean, you know, Dante, well, actually, you know what? That's another interesting wrinkle that I didn't mention. Dante wrote uh, the divine comedy in Italian, which was very uncommon at the time. He wrote it in what they called the vernacular, which is, you know, basically everyday Italian that everyone speaks. And he he did that at a time when basically everybody wrote in Latin. Everybody learned wrote in Latin, but he wrote this in Italian so everybody could read it, right? And it's interesting that this the movie is kind of translating this elevated, you know, epic poetry, you know, in Italian. It's translating it into basically cheap entertainment, right? Into like cheap thrills of the movie house, right? This is not, I I don't think we are, I don't think we are, we are to be led by the movie to be, to, to think that like, uh, this is, this is on the same level as Dante or something, right? I think the movie knows that this is a carnival barkers, uh, recreation of Dante's Inferno. And I don't mean that as fame praise at all. Right. Like, I think that's fucking dope. Like, that is cool that we have like that we have this version of it that is translated into this, you know, kind of trashy mass medium, you know, Um, and that's um, that's something I was thinking a lot about while watching this, too, almost like it's translated to us in the same way that that Dante wrote in the vernacular. He wrote this thing. So the the everyday Italian could read it, you know, and now the narrative is being translated into uh, basically mass, a mass entertainment format, right? Which again, the mass entertainment format is not even movies as we would come to uh, appreciate them, like feature length movies and stuff at this time. I mean, fucking Nickelodeons. That's what movies were, right? You would literally go to a machine and turn the crank and you know what I mean? Watch your, your, your story of a guy getting in a fight with a water hose or something, you know? (laughs) So like, I don't, when I say that the cheap entertainment thing, I don't, I really don't mean that as a dig. I mean, like just anthropologically, that's what movies were. They were literally just like moving pictures for people to go, Ooh, and ah, you know, like you would see at a carnival and like, I don't know. That's cool, man. It, it, it's awesome that like, you know, that, that we have that, that we, that we had like a translation of Dante into this like absurd kind of scary, um, spooky haunted house, uh, you know, Dante. It, it's, it's awesome, man. It's, it's, yeah, it's so cool. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the whole thing that that's really the, the best thing to say about it is just, just fucking cool. It's just cool to witness this. It's cool to think about that. They put it together how they did it, um, the fact that they were able to just do all this so many decades ago. It's just, I mean, over a century. That's just, it, it's crazy to me. So you really have to witness it for yourself. So guys, find it on YouTube. DM us on Twitter if you if you can't find it. We'll hit you up with the link. Like I said, there is a colored version 
and a black and white version. Both are are fine. There's no difference aside from the added color. I watch both of them. They look the same. So check that out. But I mean, that that's really it. Just that just go witness it because it just needs to be witnessed. So there's a few different scores too. There's a there's a Tangerine Dream score, which um is not the version that we watched. Well, it's you might have watched the other version. Um than the one you sent me uh, might have had the Tangerine Dream score, but I've heard not great things about it. But there's there's also a few different scores uh, out there. So I tell you what, this movie needs this movie needs the Passion of Joan of Arc treatment that Criterion oh yeah gave it, yeah. where it's a it's a it's obviously clean it up and you know you know restore it, make it look great, but also like have different audio tracks. You know what I mean? That would be kind of a fun. Because uh, obviously the original music is long gone, um, so I think that would be that'd be a fun, cool thing to do if we have any uh, Criterion programmers out there, you know. But yeah, man, it's uh, I'm glad you picked this. I would have never in a million years picked a movie this old just because I I, don't, I haven't seen a lot of movies this old. Uh, 1911 is a whole nother era, so I'm glad you stumbled across it. And uh, yeah, it was a good time, man. It was it was it was great. Yeah, man, me too. I'm really glad I found it on that list. That that was just that was a really like a to say deep cut is an understatement. Um, but anyway, for new listeners, guys, uh, make sure you follow us on Twitter, uh, Instagram, not so much, but follow us there. It's it's uh, random, but it happens. Uh, but anyway, any contact in terms of movie suggestions or input on the episodes, hit us up on Twitter. We appreciate the feedback from you guys. And uh, rate and review wherever you listen. That's really helpful. Uh, iTunes, Spotify, whatever app you're using, it all helps the algorithm. So uh, that would be a a big help to us. But aside from that, it's fucking Halloween. Watch some scary movies, enjoy the season, and also be on the lookout for the big shit we got cooking up over here at uh, at Silver Screen Video, guys. It's it's on the way. So yeah, we got some we got some big stuff coming up. So. yeah, look forward to that, and uh, yeah, like John said, enjoy Halloween. Don't be like us and 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 overload too much, you know. And like, take take a break. You know, you don't have to watch all Nightmare on Elm Street movies in like three days. You know what I mean? Um, oh, and also shout out Trick or Treat. Uh, that's the name of it, right? Trick or Treat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Shout out Trick or Treat. Um, if I'll say that, you know what? I'll say it. If there's one movie one horror movie that you're going to watch in Halloween, make it the direct to DVD trigger treat from like 2009 or whatever it was. Um, make it that one, which is, it's got the the stamp of approval uh, from the silver screen video as the best Halloween movie ever made. So uh, I just want to, anybody who doesn't know about a trigger tree, like, and it, which is understandable because it wasn't, you know, it's not like you're going to, see it on a list of like best horror movies or whatever, but shout out trick or treat. If, if that doesn't put you in the mood for Halloween, you might want to check your pulse. So, yeah. Also, if uh, you're lucky enough to be near a regal, they're putting it back in theaters in late October. Oh, so that's be on the right. lookout. You said that. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Be on the lookout. I'm not sure if it's going to be in my area, unfortunately, but if you get a chance to see this in the movie theaters, take it. You will not regret it. Yeah. We got, we, we got to get this trick or treat thing going, man. This is, this is a perennial favorite, man. I mean, I know a lot of people like like it and watch it and stuff, but this is this needs to become like the it's it's a wonderful life of Halloween. Oh, absolutely, hundred percent agree. So, anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed this. Thanks for listening. 
Uh, as always, to any of our listeners, thank you. But new listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you stick with us. And uh, anyway, enjoy the Halloween season. And uh, we'll see you next week here at the Silver Screen Video. Yeah.